to Luke chapter 1. It's a big chapter, but we're making our way through it. So Jesus will be born by Christmas. It's uh, painful. What happened? I think I was telling my wife there's only 28 points in the sermon today. I've disguised them into three, though. So, you know, we only have three. They're just multifaceted three points. When you stop and think about it, our country is only 230 years old. And it seems like a long time if you think way back to the signing of the Declaration of Independence and July 4th, 1776. It seems like a long time has gone by. Because uh, so much has happened with technology and how the nation has grown and and just our country is not even anywhere similar to what it was back then. And when you consider the Bible and you consider that um, there is so much history in the Bible that uh, in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the Messiah was made. And if you... We're to think our forefathers, if our forefathers were were prophets and they said that a president would arise someday that would bring peace and justice and righteousness throughout the entire United States and throughout the whole world, that would be a great promise. Well, a promise like that was made to the people of God starting in Genesis 3.15 when God said that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And then later on in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and other places in Genesis, it was promised that the Abraham seed would be the one in whom all the nations, of the earth would be blessed. And then when you think about that, that was around 2500 B.C. That's 4500 years ago, or at least years from the time of our text. And when you start looking at all of that and you start looking at the 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 Jews and they're waiting and waiting for oh, Genesis 3:15 some 6000 BC and then the time of Abraham 2500 BC and and you look at God's promises even at the end of the book of Genesis around 2000 BC and then in Deuteronomy 18 around 1400 BC And you look through the Psalms and you look through the prophets and Isaiah around 700 B.C. and Malachi in 400 B.C. The Jews had been waiting for hundreds and thousands of years waiting for the Messiah to come. And he never came. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And I'm sure there were people there who would be just like people today. If our forefathers were prophets, they'd say, oh, it's been 230 years. It's never going to happen. You know, this president isn't going to rise. Well, I'm sure there were Jews who said, well, the Messiah is not coming. Things have gotten worse. I mean, look at the Babylonian Empire. Then after that, the Medo-Persia Empire and then Greece and then Rome. And now we're just we're in worse condition than we've ever been. But yet there would always be those faithful people, that righteous remnant who would believe the word of God unconditionally. Those people would be the ones who would say, you know, the Messiah is coming because God said he would come. I don't know when he's coming, but he's coming and I'm going to believe it. I'm going to put my faith in it. I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to hope in it. And that is what was going on for 6,000 years. 
And think of all those faithful saints during those 6,000 years who never saw the Messiah. They never realized what was promised. Like the author of Hebrews said, they had hope without hope. I mean, just, they just, they just hoped beyond even the possibility of hope. And not only hoped, but they had faith, believing that God would do it, and they died never receiving what was promised. They just lived by faith that the Messiah would come. And imagine having hope for that long, a hope that is not only passed down through all the scriptures, but through your family. Your father told you about it and your father's father and your father's father's father. And and all the way back, you have this huge history, family history, a cultural history that there would be a Messiah who would come. And every day you would know in your hearts that one day the Messiah was going to come. One day he was going to come. And finally... God breaks a 400-year period of silence where people have not heard from God. There's been no prophet. There's been nothing for 400 years. And you would think, well, God is just, where is he? Haven't even heard from him. And yet, one day, he appears to a priest Zacharias, who is ministering in the temple, offering up incense, and he appears to him and sends an angel and speaks from the angel to him and lets him know that his son would be the very forerunner of the Messiah, which would mean that the Messiah was coming. Yet that priest, even though he was a priest, even though he was trained in the Old Testament scriptures, even though he had the tradition, even though he had the word of God, didn't believe. He wouldn't believe the angel. And so God had a very quick and convincing way of making sure that he knew it was true and he made him deaf and dumb. He couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. Until the angel said his son would be born, a son that would be born to him in his old age and his wife in her barrenness and old age, the very forerunner of the Messiah. And your son is finally born. You still can't speak, but finally, eight days later, when it's time to circumcise the child, there's some discussion about what to name the child. And your neighbors think that it should obviously be named Zacharias Jr. But you... Can't hear this discussion, and so they make signs to you, and then you write down on a tablet, his name is John. And when you do that, your ears are opened, your tongue is loosed, and you begin to erupt with praise to God. All the hope of Israel and the people of God for all these thousands of years is pent up within you because you've known about this. You've been thoroughly convinced over the last nine months, having been punished by God, that the Messiah is coming. And then what is interesting is the Holy Spirit comes upon you and turns you into this volcano of praise. And you begin to prophesy And you begin to speak out the very hope of Israel. And what would you say? Well, let's see what Zechariah said. 
Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and following. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old salvation from our enemies and from all and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And that's just half of it. Next half is for next week. But the first half is all talking about Christ. The second half is all talking about the forerunner of Christ. And so we are going to look at this first half. And you'll notice some very striking similarities if you look at the text. Just as Elizabeth, upon Mary's greeting, was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy, so Zacharias upon writing the name of his son, is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. And remember, we learned that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit worked in a little bit different way than in the New Testament. God's Spirit would often come upon people for a a period of time to empower them to do a certain task. And in this case, the task is to prophesy. Prophesying is to speak divine utterances, inspired utterances from God. A lot of people get this confused because when you look in the Old Testament, sometimes it's confusing because it looks like prophesying is basically the same thing as preaching. And sometimes it is. The difference is this. The person who prophesies preaches inspired messages and sometimes those messages contain new revelation or truth about the future. A preacher preaches from the inspired text. The prophet speaks inspired words directly from God. And that is what is happening here. And the first things out of Zacharias's mouth, look at verse 68, is blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And the word blessed is the word uh, eulogy or eulogize in the Greek. It's basically the same word we have in English. When you go to somebody's funeral or memorial service, they often have a eulogy. And that eulogy is a time of praise, a time of celebration where a person is, is praised or celebrated or lauded because of the good things they have done in their life. And that's the same basic meaning of the Greek word here in this text. Zacharias is praising he is overwhelmed and overcome with praise and celebration and thanksgiving and so he begins to just erupt in praise and blessing to god and then everything else on the prophecy all comes under this heading blessed be the lord god of israel everything else is a reason why the god of israel is blessed And what is interesting here is when you take into consideration that Zacharias has had the Holy Spirit come upon him and the Holy Spirit is moving him to prophesy. And we know from second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21, that no prophecy is ever made 
by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here the Lord is praising the Lord through Zacharias. God is praising himself. He desires glory and honor and praise. And so now the Holy Spirit is moving Zacharias to praise him. Because the Lord is the Spirit. We know that from 2 Corinthians 3.17. So God, in his great desire to receive glory, moves this man, Zacharias, to utter this incredible praise, which is like theological concentrate. And uh, you just add a little bit of study here, you get many gallons of sermons. I'm going to give it to you in concentrated form this morning because uh, we need to get Jesus born in the right time. But this is something that I think you'll be blessed as we go through here. And the first thing I think we need to learn from verse 68 is this, that those who have the Messiah, those who know the Lord God of Israel, need to be blessing him. And the question you need to ask yourself is, are you blessing God? And I know that you are blessing God or praising God on Sunday morning. At least I hope you are. I hope you don't come here while we're all corporately worshiping God. You're just sitting there mad. Hopefully that isn't the case. But what about the rest of the week? What about the rest of the week when you are driving in your car, when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're in the shower, some of the best times to sing, when your voice is low. You can sing some of those hymns you just can't ever sing. Do you praise God? Last week, have you praised God? If you look back and you think, you know, I I can't even think of a time when I praised God last week. It might be that you don't know Christ. Because if you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you and the Holy Spirit will move you to praise him. We saw this before. That the the effect of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly and the effect of the Holy Spirit being in, in you is that you speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is, you will bless and praise God. And if that is not happening in your life, then something is terribly wrong. And you know what is interesting is this is exactly what we see Zacharias doing in the text before us. He is praising and blessing the God of Israel. Not just any God, but the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, Yahweh Elohim. It's like a double designation. Sometimes in reading your Old Testament, you see, you know, the word Yahweh um, in the text. And that is the, you know, the caps, all, you know, capital L and then small caps, O-R-D. That's when you have the ineffable, the unutterable tetragrammaton, the Yahweh Yodhei. And that, that's the, like the sacred name of God, the memorial name of God that he gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when he appeared to him in the burning bush. And then you have the other designation of God, Elohim, which is a very common name given to God. And then you have the word Adonai, which is often translated Lord, but capital L and then just regular letters O-R-D to designate the three. And here you have the double meaning. It is not just Lord. It is not just God. It is the Lord God and the Lord God of the chosen people of Israel. A designation which appears some 54 times in the Old Testament. Now. We are ready to look at verses 68 through 75. 
And I've distilled all these 20 some points down into three gracious deeds. The Lord has done for you that you should move that should move you to bless him. Let's look at the first one in verse 68. You should praise the Lord for he has visited you. Notice what verse 68 says. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us. Just stop there for a second. What does this mean? Visited. Well, it's a pretty interesting word. It doesn't appear uh, too many times um, in the new in the New Testament. Usually it's used in a different way. Usually it's translated overseer. It's the same root word. We get the word overseer from another designation of the word elder overseer. It comes from two words, uh, scopeo, which is to scope the words we get, you know, microscope and telescope or just to scope. And then this little preposition epi on front of it, which means over really means overscoper. That's what it means. It is one who looks over or sees over. And in this context, when it's used in this way, it's talking about being visited by somebody. Somebody comes and sees you. That is, they visit you. They're able to look over at you. And what's interesting here is this phrase, when you look in the Old Testament, is often used to describe God's blessing. For instance, when they were in Egypt and they were oppressed, it says, and the Lord God saw their affliction. Same concept there. Or in Ruth chapter one, verse six, Ruth and Naomi are in the land of Moab and they hear that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. That is, he saw his people in the famine and has given them food. But in this instance, God visited Israel with himself, with himself incarnate. He broke the 400-year period of silence. He sent an angel, both to a priest and to a young virgin, and let them know the forerunner is coming and the Messiah is coming. And now both of these two men are now conceived and still in the the the, or at least one is still in the womb of Mary. John has just been born. And so God is now visiting his people with new revelation, with new promises and new hopes. And you and I need to praise God for that. A lot of times we read stories like this and we just think, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. Do you know if John the Baptist had never come, Christ would have never come. And if Christ never came, you couldn't be saved. This is significant not only for Zacharias and Elizabeth and the people of their time. It's significant for us as well. That's why it's written here. You and I need to praise God that he sent John, that he sent Christ to die on the cross so that you and I could be saved. And so you need to ask yourself, are you doing this? Because this is the purpose of this. You need to be praising God because he has visited us. Secondly, You need to praise the Lord. Look at verse 68 for he has accomplished redemption for you. After he says he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now the word redemption appears some 153 times in the old and new testaments. And you know, it's a common phrase. A lot of people know it, but I find something very interesting. I find that we often have 
strong theological terms loaded with meaning and truth. And a lot of people have no idea what they mean. You know, if, if it was a life and death issue that you give a, a decent definition of redemption, uh, some of you would not would be, would die. Because you, well, yeah, redemption is, um, you know, and you wouldn't know. We end up a lot of times learning these theological terms. We read them in the scriptures. We get used to them, but we never stop and ask ourselves, what do they mean? What is redemption? You need to know this. It's important that you know this. Your salvation depends upon the redemption you have in Christ Jesus. And one of the greatest pictures of redemption is found in the Old Testament. Can you think of what it is? It is the Exodus. The Exodus. Picture this in your mind. The people of Israel are in a foreign land. They're oppressed. They're oppressed by cruel taskmasters and are in desperate need of deliverance so they can worship God and live in peace. God then raises up Moses and through a series of plagues, the final being the death of the firstborn. He delivers his people from bondage, but only because. Those people know the death of the firstborn is coming and they take a lamb, slaughter it and put the blood over the doorposts of their house. So when the angel of death comes, it passes over because of the blood of the lamb. So by the death of the firstborn and the blood of the lamb, they escape death. Does that sound familiar? God, through the death of the firstborn and the sacrifice of the lamb, delivered the people, paid the price, is really what redemption is. Paid the price to deliver them from bondage to cruelty and oppression. And in the same way, you had a cruel taskmaster, Satan, who deceived you and deluded you and promised you freedom while in reality made you a slave to corruption where the only thing you had to look forward to is eternal condemnation. And yet God, by the death of his firstborn son, by the blood of the lamb, redeems you, pays the penalty of your sin, dies your death so that you, through faith in him, can have everlasting life. So you can worship God in peace and escape a bondage to Satan and sin. I think Fanny Crosby's song, Redeemed, explains our redemption in Christ probably better than any other systematic theology I have ever read. The song is familiar to many of us. Its words read, Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with me does continually dwell 
I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guards my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. And then the chorus, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. That song says it. That's what redemption is. In this song, I just kind of looked at it. First, it tells us the means by which you are redeemed. Fanny Crosby lists two things. You are redeemed by the blood of the lamb and secondly, by God's infinite mercy, which is true. Secondly, the song tells us the consequences of your being redeemed. One, you will be you will forever be his child. Secondly, the light of his presence will continually dwell within you. Third, you shall see the beauty of Christ face to face. Fourth, four, he will protect you. Five, he will give you reasons to rejoice in him, even in the darkest times of life. And third, the song tells us your proper response. One, you are to proclaim Jesus' redemption. Two, you are to be happy in Jesus. Three, you are to think about Christ continually. Four, you are to sing about Christ. Five, you are to speak of Christ. Six, you are to rejoice in his love. And seven, you are to praise him even in the darkest hours of your life. And that is exactly why Zacharias praises God for the redemption that God has accomplished through his people. And what's interesting is Jesus, Jesus hasn't even been born yet. He hasn't even died on the cross yet. But he is so sure when God makes a promise, it is so absolutely certain that oftentimes it is recorded in what is called the historical presence as if it was already happened. And I, some of, I know some of you probably don't know the Lord. In a room this big, there are those who probably know you don't know the Lord. Others of you may think you know the Lord and yet don't. And others of you pretend to know the Lord and don't. You are still in bondage to sin and Satan. You were held captive by him to do his will. He promises you freedom, but you yourselves know you are a slave to corruption and there's nothing you can do about it. How long will you put your hand in the face of God? How long will you rebel against him in your heart? How long will you pretend to be one of his children? Oh, you can fool us. There is no doubt you can fool us. We're fooled. But what good is that? What good is it is if you live all of your life deceiving other people? Only to die and to have a funeral service where they all laud you and praise you because you love the Lord and that you're with the Lord when in reality you're in hell. Who are you deceiving? Well, you're deceiving us, but you aren't deceiving the person who matters. You aren't deceiving God. Don't let your pride get in the way. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't love the Lord, if in your heart you know you don't love the Lord, it is time to repent. It's time to receive Jesus Christ and turn from your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. He died. God accomplished redemption for you. He has paid the ticket so you can get to heaven, but you must receive it. And notice... 
He accomplishes redemption, not for everyone. Notice the end of verse 68 for his people. And there's only one way you become his people. And that's through the grace of God, through repentance and faith and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way you can't get to heaven any other way. And if you're out there and you know, you know, Jesus, and you've seen him change your life. And you do desire to serve him and worship him and praise him, then do it. Because he has accomplished redemption for you. Third, look at verse 69. Verse 69 is the beginning of a very long and detailed statement. Verse 69 tells us and following that we need to praise the Lord for he has raised up a horn of salvation for you. Now that is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Has raised up a horn of salvation. I mean, this is not a term we use. You don't say, well, my boss at work is a real horn. We have a real horn of a president. That just seems weird. That seems wrong. I don't know what it means, but it doesn't seem right. But in this culture, it was readily understood. Now, if you were an elk hunter, you would know what this meant. Let me tell you. The biggest elk, the strongest elk, have the largest horns and antlers. And they use those horns to do battle and to protect themselves. And in the animal kingdom, you see this. You see, for instance, goats and rams and and deer and elk and, you know, rhinoceroses. That's how you say it, rhinos. They all have horns and those horns represent their power. And so... The horn of salvation is an idiom for saying the power of salvation. And yet in a prophetic context, if you remember, for instance, the book of Daniel, you remember those visions about God raising up the kingdoms and, you know, the ten horns and the three horns and the little horn? In those instances, in the prophetic sections, it's often not only used of strength and power, but royal strength and power. And so what Zacharias is saying here is he has raised up a royal, powerful savior for us. Someone who is a divine, divinely powerful, kingly powerful to save us. That's what he's saying here. And then from this, he begins to explain All of these different things that God has done through this horn of salvation that he has raised up for you and for me. The first thing he tells us where is where the redeemer comes from. Look at verse 69. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Jesus had to come from David's line because it was prophesied way back in Genesis 49. The scepter would not depart from Judah. And then later on, it was promised to David that in his, from his line would come the Messiah who would rule and reign forever. And so it had to come from Judah. It had to come from David's line. And here we find out that that is exactly where Jesus has come from. And Zacharias knows this. And so he pr- just praises God that he has raised up this horn, this redeemer in the house of David, his servant. 
Secondly, if you look at verse 70, it says, it tells us where that horn of salvation was was expected. It says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The holy prophets are reference to the writers of the Hebrew scriptures. And they did prophesy Christ would come, right? I mean, we already looked, talked about Genesis 3.15 and, you know, all those different texts um, that the Abrahamic covenant is mentioned. The Abrahamic covenant is mentioned over and over again. Uh, the Genesis 49 that we just mentioned, the scepter would not depart from Judah all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the prophets, and Isaiah 53 and the minor prophets. All those people prophesied that the Messiah would come. And that's exactly those 6,000 years of prophetic utterances, waiting, anticipating that the Messiah would come. This is the man, Jesus Christ, and he is predicting that God has now raised up this horn of salvation just like he promised. God never breaks his promises. He will never break his promises to Israel and he will never break his promises to you. Now, Zacharias, having nine months to meditate on these things in silence, begins to spew out all these selected promises that God has made. And he lists five of them. First, look at verse 71. What did the prophets of old promise? Salvation from our enemies. Israel had been oppressed by Gentile powers for hundreds of years. They still are. I mean, you read in the paper, you think, you know, what a bummer to be Israel. Everybody around them hates them. They've always hated them. Have you ever wondered why that is? Because they're the chosen people of God, because God has a plan for them, because God is going to do great things for them still. You know, when you look, for instance, at a publication like The Voice of the Martyrs, which talks about all the persecuted peoples of the earth, you don't find Buddhists being persecuted throughout history or Hindus or Muslims. There's two groups that are always persecuted. Who are they? Jews and Christians. Why? Because Christians are the people of God and Jews are the nation that God is going to bring to repentance during the tribulation. And so Satan knows this. And so his wrath is poured out on Jews and has been poured out on Jews. And here is the promise that the prophets prophesied that Israel would be have salvation or deliverance from their enemies. Secondly, look at verse 71. And salvation from all those who hate us, which would include all of those world powers who have always hated them. But not only that, it would include Satan, who, of course, is the one who instigates these world powers against Israel. Satan is the one who wants to just see Israel wiped out. And yet there would be deliverance from even demonic powers. Look at verse 72. God also promised through the prophets to show mercy towards our fathers, which is interesting because all those fathers waited all those years for the Messiah and they never saw the Messiah come. But the fathers, though they are dead physically, are still alive. Do you realize that one day you, if you know Jesus, will speak to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph And David, all those people we are going to be with in heaven. And here God is showing mercy towards the fathers. Why? Because he is now fulfilling the word that he made to them. 
but they never saw, realized he is fulfilling it right then at that time in the life of Zacharias and that generation. The Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, was conceived in the virgin's womb at that moment and would be born. Fourth, look at verse 73. God also promised through the holy prophets of old to remember his holy covenant and the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. You know, the promise was made to Genesis in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That was the first time the promises was made. But later on, it was explained in more detail in chapter 15 and 17 and 18 and 22 and 24 and 26 and 28 and 46. And that's just in Genesis. And then the, the, all the way through the Old Testament, it gets referenced and referenced and referenced. It's, it's referenced in Galatians. It's referenced in Hebrews. It, it keeps being referenced. Why? Because when God makes a promise, he has to fulfill it. And God, through the ages, has always kept his word perfectly, and he will keep his word to you just as he did to Abraham. Think about it. This coming of the Messiah and the forerunner of the Messiah was was fulfilled. It was a fulfillment of the oath which God swore to Abraham some 2,500 years previous. And yet now it's being realized. And the Abrahamic covenant, as we mentioned, was a unilateral covenant. That is, only God was the binding party. Abraham slept. And out of all the unconditional promises to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant was the backbone of God's promises. And we get to enjoy them. Even if you're not a Jew, even if you're a Gentile, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you get grafted in to the true olive tree. You get to enjoy the blessings to Abraham through Christ. Edward Moat's classic hymn, The Solid Rock, has a line in it which explains our assurance and salvation. It says, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. That is a great line because that is what keeps you. God's promise, his oath, his covenant, which cannot be broken. And so when God says, here is the Redeemer. If you believe in him, you will be saved. You will be saved. And even though all around your soul gives way, that oath, that covenant is your hope and stay. When you have God's promises, you have all you need to have all the hope you need to have until the promise is realized. Fifth and finally, look at verse 74. God promises through the holy prophets to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him again. The whole idea of being rescued from oppressors, from enemies. But notice the phrase there at the end. Don't miss it. That we might serve him. You know, a lot of Christians have a confused idea about this. Some Christians think, well, I'm saved to do what I want to do. No. No, no, no. You used to do what you wanted to do. But guess what? It wasn't you. It was Satan who was deluding you. You were held captive by him to do his will and you didn't even know it. No, when you are saved, you are freed from sin and Satan to be enslaved to righteousness. You don't get to do what you want. 
It's not that you used to be a slave to sin and Satan and now you are free. No, you've just changed masters. That's all. You're still a slave and slaves have to obey. You have to obey. And it's amazing how many people chafe against that. And if you're out there thinking, you know, well, nobody's going to tell me to obey. Something's wrong. If your spine begins to, to stiffen when I tell you, you have to obey God. You have to submit to him. You have to serve him. If that bothers you, then you're in rebellion against God. Because you have to. Some people say things like, oh, well, you know, you're a legalist. You're always talking about obeying. Well, what should I talk about? Disobeying? Were you saved to disobey? Of course not. But some would make you think so. Some would make you think that salvation is nothing more than deliverance from hell so you can indulge your flesh in the presence. Present. Not so. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Let me show you probably one of my favorite texts on this. Titus chapter 2. Page 1215. Look at verse 11 of Titus 2. Notice what it says here. It amazes me when people come to me and they say, well, you know, you need to preach the grace of God and quit preaching about obedience. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. And some people would like to think that that was all that verse ever said. Oh, we've got grace, unmerited, undeserved favor from God, which has caused us to be saved. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And it is wonderful. But that's not all there is. The verse keeps going. It tells us what kind of saving grace is given to us. What saving grace does within us. It instructs us, verse 12. What does it instruct us to do? Oh, to do nothing but to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly and to live righteously and to live godly in the present age and to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself to redeem us, which is another way of describing the grace of God which has appeared to us and the grace of God has redeemed us from every lawless deed and the grace of God was given to us to purify for himself a people for his own possession and it was given to us to redeem us to be zealous for good deeds. That people is the grace of God. Not freedom to rebel and freedom to do what you want. It is switching masters. Sin and Satan or Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that's what the grace of God does. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And when you receive it, it turns you into this kind of person. And Paul knew that Timothy, when he would preach this sort of grace, would receive opposition. And that's why he says in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That word disregard means sidestep you, try and get around you. Don't let anybody get by you. No one. You look at them, you tell them you have to obey. 
You have to deny ungodliness, deny worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present days, live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ, forsake every lawless deed. You have to live in purity. You have to be zealous for good works because the grace of God has appeared instructing us to do those things. And that is exactly what Zacharias tells us here. Notice he says, right after he says that we might serve him, he grants us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him. And then he lists some qualifiers, five of them. The first is without fear, without fear. The end of verse 74. Christians, you don't have to serve God out of fear. Now, we need to have the proper fear, of fear of the Lord or reverence for God. That's good. But you don't have to fear condemnation. Romans 8 makes it clear. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. God's never going to say, you know, have you said, hey, do you remember when you did this and this, you know, and for 10,000 years and this and this. No condemnation. Zero. You will never be condemned. He has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you and has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. And so now you stand before him without condemnation. And so you don't need to fear him. And so God wants you to serve him not out of fear, but out of love, out of reverence, out of thankfulness, out of respect. Secondly, look at verse 75. We learn that we are to serve him not only in not only without fear, but in holiness. Now, this is not the standard word translated holy. The, the, the standard word translated holy is means to be set apart. This one describes a devotion to God to please him in every respect. And not only that, look at what else he says. And also in righteousness, which means doing what is right. And not only that, before him. You know, a lot of times we serve God and we think, you know, we God's not watching. We act like God's not watching. He's always watching. Most people do their, their worst deeds in the dark when no one's around. Why? Because they don't want anybody to see them. The problem is God does see you. Every second of every day, he is always present. And this is not talking about the attribute of God's omnipresence. It's talking about how you are to live in light of God's attribute of omnipresence. You are to serve him, always remembering he's always there watching you. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are always watching you. They are always in your presence. So serve before him because you are. And then finally, all our days. As long as you have days, then serve him. That's what you're supposed to do. And let's say you joined the army at 18. And let's say while you're in the army, you're taken captive. You're made a prisoner. You're taken to some secret spot and you're turned into a slave. You're beaten. You're abused. You're hardly given enough food and water to eat. Your body starts shriveling up. You get all emaciated and weak. You're told by... Your master, you will continue to serve me. And if you ever stop, I will torture you to death. And so you hardly have any hope. And one night as you're sleeping on the concrete floor of your cell, you have a whisper at the door. Wake up. I am here to set prisoners free. 
Do you want to be set free? And you're excited and you're overwhelmed with gratitude because of the hope of your deliverance. And what do you say? Yes, yes, I want to be set free. But then the voice says, I can deliver you from your cruel master. From his abuse, from having to suffer death by torture, but you must utterly deny him. You must turn from his ways completely. I will give you freedom. I will protect you. I will cherish you. I will provide for you. I will comfort you. I will give you joy, unexpressible and riches beyond counting. I will give you all of that. And all you have to do is serve me without fear. Serve me in holiness. Serve me in righteousness. Serve me in my presence. And do this all of your days. And so my question is you. To you is this. Which master will you serve? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be in this place and to worship you and to hear from your word. Father, it is amazing that you have, by your grace, reached down to such poor, worthless sinners as ourselves, so unworthy enemies to you, and yet, by your grace, by your mercy, because of nothing we have done, you have granted us repentance and drawn us to yourself and opened our eyes to the truth that we might be saved. But, Father, we know your word says that we have to take up our cross and follow you. We have to die to self, die to sin, die to Satan. We have to turn from our old ways and turn to follow you in righteousness. Help us to do that and help us to praise you all along the way for our redemption, for the horn of our salvation. Father, just for sending Jesus, we thank you for everything he is and everything he has done for us. May our lives reflect our true worship of him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you need somebody to pray with you, to minister to you, we have counselors over here who would love to do that. The rest of you, as you head out, uh, meet somebody you don't know and say hi to them. Maybe the Sherman's up here and get to know them. You are dismissed.